welcome back to Generals and Napoleon, episode 72, Admiral Nelson of the British Navy. Before we begin, I'd like to remind all of our listeners that if you'd like to support our podcast, please check out patreon.com forward slash Generals and Napoleon. If you'd like to support our podcast in other ways, please go to Spotify, Amazon, Apple, or wherever podcasts are heard and give us a review or rating. We appreciate your assistance. Now, on with the show. Gracious enough to join us, Evan Wilson from the United States Naval War College. Say hello, Evan. Hi. Hey, thanks for Yeah, finally, thanks for joining us. Pleasure to be here. Absolutely. So we are going to talk about probably other than Napoleon and the Duke of Wellington, maybe even amongst those three, the most interesting guy from the era uh, in Admiral Nelson, correct? I'm just glad to see an Admiral on your Generals and Napoleon podcast. <laughs> right. This is my first Admiral, I think, that I've had on. So, yeah, we, uh, we make the foray into naval tactics and warfare. So thank you for joining us. Pleasure to be here. Yeah. If you're not familiar with Evan, um, in addition to being a professor at the Naval War College, he also has a few uh, books that I highly recommend. There's one out right now called The Horrible Peace. It's a book about British veterans post. It's post Waterloo, but really starts around 1812. Correct, Evan? That's right. I try to uh, start the story as the wars begin to end and carry it for about a decade after the wars. Okay, And we can find this book on Amazon or anywhere books are sold. Correct. That's right. All right. And Evan's been on other podcasts. And yeah, we're going to talk about um, the famous Horatio Nelson today. And um, yeah, let's let's kick off and uh, I guess depart from our moorings. <laughs> Very good. Yeah. See what I did there? Yeah, um, he was born in September 1758 in Norfolk, England. Uh, he's the sixth of 11 children to Edmund Nelson and his wife, Catherine Suckling. I don't know a whole lot about his early life. Was was it an aristocratic family? Uh, not really. Uh, his father's a clergyman, so he's mm-hmm. a country parson. Uh, not much, uh, very, not, not, nothing very exciting about it. Um, his mom's family is related, he's cousin to the, uh, the Walpoles. So he has some connections on that side uh, and that becomes important in his career later. But you know, he's, a, he's a son of a clergyman. Um, if you've ever been to Burnham Thorpe in, in Norfolk, it's uh, not, much to, uh, not much to write home about. It's past <laughs> land and goes right up to the ocean. It's brackish. He's born very close to the sea, but um, not, not in one of the more picturesque parts of, uh, of the country, let's say. Got it. Got it. And um, I think this is going to be interesting because he, he does work his way basically to the top, kind of like Napoleon did, without a whole lot of, I should say, support or, or I guess doors open for him when he started off. Yeah. Uh, his mom died when he was nine. Um, so his uh, dad had eight children and, a, and not much money. So the Navy was a good choice. And he was able to uh, leverage his mother's family connections to get his career uh, started. So he joins um, the uh, Reza Nabla in, um, in 1771. And the captain of that ship is Captain Maury Suckling, um, who is his uncle. Okay. Yeah, I, I found that interesting. Uh, you know, he begins his naval career um, in 1771. And he suffers from chronic seasickness throughout his life. So that seems like an odd career choice then to me that he joined the Navy. Is that accurate? 
Well, I think any sailor will tell you that um, everyone gets seasick if it's rough enough. So it's True. not to overstate um, the significance of that. Mm. But I think, um, yeah, certainly he um, he does suffer from seasickness and occasionally at, at very inopportune times. So that's um, not the, the ideal trait of, a, of a naval officer. But uh, nevertheless, I don't think it's so bad that he can't, you know, he, he can't function on a ship or anything like that. So right. and he, it doesn't it doesn't uh, deter him from a career at sea uh, when he first joins. OK, we well, mentioned um, the HMS Rosenbaum. Um What was his early career like? It seems to be a truly global experience where he's, he's seeing the world first in the East and West Indies. Yeah, it's remarkable how far he travels uh, in his young career. So uh, the Raisinop was mobilized uh, to deal with the Falklands crisis with Spain in 1770-71, but uh, that, that doesn't end up going uh, becoming a war. So uh, his uncle uh, realizes that if he's going to pursue a career in the Navy, he needs to get more sea time. And so he sends him on a West Indiaman, which is commanded by one of uh, Suckling, the, the uncle's former petty officers. Um, and that's pretty unusual in terms of uh, early naval career um, for, for men of his generation. Uh, not, not entirely unusual, but, but certainly not something that, that everybody was able to do. Uh, and then uh, in 1773, he managed to get himself um, on a different ship, which was headed to the North Pole. Wow. Uh, they didn't make it that far, but they're looking for an ice-free passage up there. And so uh, they end up north of Norway, and Nelson has a famous encounter with the polar bear where he was... <laughs> Uh, you know, on the ice away from the ship, he wasn't supposed to be. And there's some funny prints of him about to smack a polar bear in the face with the butt end of a musket, which <laughs> is probably not what happened. Uh, probably instead, he saw the polar bear and, and ran away, uh, as any sane person would do when they see a polar bear. Uh, but then he comes back in October 73 and ends up in the East Indies. So, yeah, he's he's covered uh, about, you know, two thirds of the globe there in just his first three or four years. Yeah, just uh, he, he. I mean, basically a teenager at this point. He's seen a lot already. Yeah, I mean, it's a it's a big empire, the British Empire, uh, especially after the Seven Years' War when they've uh, captured <laughs> Canada and uh, and India from the French. So, uh, it's uh, this the navy's what stitched the empire together, right, through the sea lines of communication, and therefore it's not too surprising that we would see uh, an officer who would uh, or a future officer who would spend a lot of time uh, on those routes. But yeah, it's it is. Uh, if you're comparing him to his contemporaries, he probably got more global experience faster than most. Yeah. And he um, works his way up the ranks to be a midshipman, um, you know, basically starting point for an officer. How fast or slow was the upper mobility for British naval officers at this time? So it's uh, first important to note that uh, even though Nelson starts as an ordinary seaman, no one on board the ship would have identified him as such. Mm. So the muster book, said that he was an ordinary seaman, but everybody knew that he was the uncle's, the, the captain's nephew. Got it. Uh, and they would have marked him out as a future officer. What was in the muster book had to do with the requirements for passing the lieutenant's exam. So at this stage, every uh, everybody who wanted to be eligible for a commission as a lieutenant had to pass a written and oral exam. Mm -hmm. uh, in order to, to qualify for a lieutenant, which is not something that the British Army ever had to do. So this is uh, different from, from the Army experience. So you had to pass this exam, and in order to be eligible to, to sit the exam, you had to have six years of sea time. Mm. At least two of those, you had to be rated as a midshipman. So uh, what his uncle is doing is basically trying to get him sea time and then also find time to rate him as a midshipman. 
Um, and that is more of a bureaucratic uh, rec um, thing than it is. And I, um, it doesn't necessarily, you can't tell from what's in the book what Nelson's responsibilities would have been on board because it depended on how old he was, how skilled he was, how much experience he had, what kind of ship his captain ran. So um, his early career is, is pretty typical. And that's six years that it takes him to go from his first experience at sea until he passes the exam is exactly in line with what most other officers uh, were doing. Got it. Well, I know in the, uh, the British Army, if, especially if you're a, a noble, you could buy your promotions pretty quickly up to lieutenant colonel, you know, in a fast way. And I just wasn't sure if the Navy was a similar way. Right. You can't purchase a commission in the Navy. Uh, that's a major distinction between the two services. So uh, Nelson has to serve sea time like everybody else. He has to be rated as midshipman like everybody else. He's got to pass the exam like everybody else. Whether you passed or failed the exam, there are a lot of different things that could influence that. It's uh, better better to think about it like a driver's test. Mm. You know, if you pass the lieutenant's exam, that does not mean you're a brilliant sailor, but you had to show that you were capable of um, the basics, at least. Right. Uh, just like you wouldn't necessarily think all 16-year-olds are good drivers. You'd say, <laughs> well, uh, at least the 16-year-old has a basic understanding of the rules of the road and, and how to get the car from A to B. Right, right. Well, it's not long before he gets his first taste of command during the American Revolutionary War. Um, how did he perform? And w was there anything that made him stand out from the pack early on? Like, did people say, oh, wow, this guy's really going to be a talented commander one day? Initially, no. Mm -hmm. Initially, what made him stand out from the pack was that his uncle had become the controller of the Navy, mm -hmm. which is the head of uh, basically the shore infrastructure. And so the commander-in-chief in the West Indies, which is where he's uh, stationed in the American War, thinks, hmm, this guy's uncle is an important person in the naval hierarchy. I should keep him close to me. And so he moves him to the flagship, uh, this is Peter Parker, um, uh, soon after Nelson arrives on the station. After that, by all accounts, uh, Parker identified that this guy actually knew what he was doing. And the Admiral uh, uh, quickly recognized that Nelson was was his own man and was on the up and up. So, um, and in fact, his uncle died just a year after he became controller. So uh, the importance of the connection quickly went away. Um, but in uh, December of 1778, Nelson became the commander of a brig, the Badger, which was uh, patrolling, uh, I think in Nicaragua. And then he's uh, promoted to a captain in uh, June of 1779. And so that's, he's 21 years old at that point. And that is a rapid rise because um, the way the British naval ranks worked, you had to have six years before you could pass for lieutenant. But after that, you could be promoted very quickly, either because of your talent or because of your connections or because of good luck or some combination of them. Mm -hmm. Commander and then from commander to captain. Once you've made post-captain, you couldn't be promoted to admiral uh, until unless by seniority. So okay. uh, it was only by seniority after that. So basically the, um, the rapid rise of Nelson in the West Indies in the American war is, uh, I wouldn't say completely unusual, but it is, he's promoted very quickly into a position of authority so that by 21, he's gone as, as high in the Navy as he can get on his own merit. Yeah, that's interesting. And, um, but he, he's not, you know, Lord Nelson, as we know him yet, he hasn't had the spectacular victories, but he's in, like you mentioned, he becomes captain in 1781. He's commanding the Alba Marle. And did he have that giant personality? Yeah. Like what was it like to serve under him? So 
he's basically the opposite of Wellington is a good way to think about it. So where Wellington was aloof and, and distant and a hard guy to sort of get to become friends with or get to know, uh, Nelson was was the opposite. He was friendly with with pretty much everybody. He was famous for knowing the names of all the men on his ship and greeting them. Uh, he's approachable. Um, and it, by all accounts, this has been tr- this was true of him for his whole life. Mm. So as a young captain, he was known for his what became later known as the Nelson touch. Um, and so, you know, Nelson was somebody that his men tended to, in almost all cases, worship as uh, this as a, as a very talented and amiable and uh, fair-minded commander. So, uh, yeah. no, he's he's definitely somebody that um, that you'd want to work for. Yeah, he seems very gregarious and and outgoing, and he kind of reminds me of Marshall Ney, and just utterly fearless. Like his troops love serving, or his sailors love serving under him, and wanted to go the extra mile for him. Sure. Yeah, that's a good comparison. So moving on to his personal life, in 1785, he meets his future wife, Frances Fanny Nelson, and they're married two years later. What was that marriage like? I've heard it was kind of up and down. Yeah, it's always hard to know how other people's marriages actually were. But, you know, when when the two of them meet on Nevis in uh, the West Indies, Fanny's husband had just died and she had a young son named Josiah and apparently... Uh, Josiah and Nelson sort of hit it off underneath the table at a party once, and that's how he and Fanny met. So it, you know, it's sort of a meet cute situation, right? Um, and they seem after Fanny and Horatio seem to have been uh, sort of happy enough, as far as we can tell. They were childless, um, so Fanny had had a kid with with her previous husband, but but didn't have one with with Nelson, right? Um, so you know the marriage. We can talk a lot more about it when we get to the, the section on Naples, but. Um, Certainly the marriage broke down, certainly the marriage uh, collapsed and in uh, recriminations and bad feelings and all the rest of it. And Nelson was to a large degree responsible for that. Uh, but early on, it's, it's hard to say much about the marriage other than it seems like it was probably OK, at least for the first 10 years or so. Yeah. Uh, and after that, it, it clearly was not. Yeah. And he was away a lot. So that probably didn't help anything. Yeah. Yeah. Um, in 1793, uh, he's serving in the Mediterranean Sea. So again, a new theater, but you know, he's all over the world, as we mentioned, and he's involved in the invasion of Corsica, which is Napoleon's home Island. Um, this is another uh, campaign uh, that I, I would say had its ups and downs. How did that go? Yeah, it's interesting. Nelson had, uh, in a sort of diplomatic role in that mm-hmm. campaign. He spent a lot of time detached from the main British force trying to shore up allied efforts against Republican French forces all over the Western Mediterranean. Uh, It's a campaign that uh, a lot of historians are sort of revisiting uh, lately because uh, it's clear that the British left a lot of opportunities on the table and that the failure of the allied coalition against the French uh, was uh, to some degree Britain's fault. So they're they're trying to sort of re-examine the campaign. But Nelson's role was basically to try to shore up the allied support. And it, yeah, like you said, ups and downs. So he leads the blockade of Corsica in 1794 and uh, cooperates with Pasquale Pioli and his Corsican patriots and saw a lot of action there. Actually, he goes ashore an awful lot. The reputation of the British army at this period is at a very low ebb. And so 
Uh, most of the naval officers don't think that the army officers that are deployed with them know at all what they're doing. Mm-hmm. And, uh, they need to take action uh, on their own. And so a lot of naval officers spend time like leading, you know, Marine detachments ashore and, and doing shore raids and that sort of stuff. And in one of those actions, Nelson was wounded in the face by stones that were thrown up from a shot and he lost the sight in his right eye. He didn't wear a patch or anything like that, but he um, he definitely couldn't see very well out of it. Um, and then in uh, 1795, the criticism is that his commander at the time, Hotham, was uh, far too timid and Nelson was very dissatisfied with him. But then there's a new commander in chief after that in January 1796, who's John Jarvis. And he and Nelson immediately hit it off because Jarvis is much more aggressive and uh, ready to sort of take the action to the enemy. So it's a yeah, I, I think that's a good characterization and up and down a few years in the Mediterranean, some successes, but some wounds and some frustrations as well. Right. And I think like any young commander, you're learning what works and what doesn't. And, uh, you know, Napoleon didn't win every one of his battles starting off. You know, it, it, you, you learn some things. Yeah, it is interesting. He's young. He's also senior. Both of those things are true. So he's. Um, you know, just, I guess, in the 1790s, he would be uh, trying to do math in public here, you know, in his 30s, basically. But so he's, he's not that old, but he's been a post captain for, you know, all the way back to the to the American War. So mm-hmm. he's getting into some senior leadership positions. And, and we'll see in a second when he gets promoted to admiral. But um, yeah, he's I think this is his first taste of uh, a proper European war. And it's all gone wrong. And uh, the Republican French forces are clearly uh, in command of the, of the Mediterranean by the time the campaign ends. Yeah. And, and let's let's talk about that real briefly. Were the captains, post-captains and admirals supposed to be out on the deck leading the fight, or are they supposed to be far away from the battle, just kind of coordinating it? But by the nature of ships, uh, they are right smack in the middle. There's nowhere else for them to go because right. the platform moves and they carry them with it. So the, you are always in the line of fire uh, when whenever your ship is in action, no matter who you are. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's a It sort of flattens the risk. Everybody on the ship is at risk. Um, so yeah. what a captain was expected to do in action was to stand on the quarterback, quarterdeck and to direct the action uh, and to, you know, give orders about the sails and the guns and which direction the, the wheel and all those sorts of things. Mm-hmm. Uh, but often by the time you actually got into a proper fight with another ship, there wasn't a whole, there weren't many more orders to give. And so your job was to stand there and to be courageous and basically mm-hmm. uh, show your men that you weren't afraid and that you were there to take the risks that they were also taking while they were firing the guns. Yeah. Lead by example. Yeah. Right. I guess. Well, in 1797, we still find him serving in the med and he performs well at the battle of Cape St. Vincent against the Spanish Navy, despite disobeying orders. Is this when he becomes Admiral? This is one of the great myths of Nelson's career. So he didn't actually disobey orders. Okay. And I won't get too far into the tactical weeds, but you do need to understand a couple things about how the battle actually goes. So the British are heavily outnumbered. This is the British squadron under uh, John Jarvis, who I, I mentioned earlier, mm-hmm. heavily outnumbered by the Spanish. Um, but the Spanish are split into two groups. There's a convoy that the Spanish are trying to escort, and that's uh, where the, uh, the origin of the, of the fighting comes from. Um, And the British end up in between the two groups of Spanish ships. Um, But the Spanish don't just like take that. They actually respond, of course, to the British moves and end up turning to sort of chase the British squadron. And the easiest way to think about it is that the two squadrons would have ended up um, chasing each other's tail and never actually properly engaging with each other. Mm -hmm. So what 
the uh, Admiral Jarvis does is he ordered the um, Admiral who was in command of Nelson's part of the fleet to attack, to turn, mm-hmm. to solve this problem, basically to, to force the engagement with the Spanish. But for reasons that are not entirely clear, the Admiral did not, didn't see the signal or didn't acknowledge the signal or wasn't sure what the signal was supposed to mean. It's, we don't really know exactly how that worked. Um, and, but Nelson sort of independently recognized and also probably maybe saw the signal and recognized that something had to be done. So he pulled out a line and turned the other direction. He wore out a line um, and ended up putting his ship right in front of the onrushing Spanish ships and stopping them and thereby bringing it to action and thereby allowing the other British ships to come into the action as well. Mm-hmm. So he didn't disobey orders. He was following his commander's intent. Um, but it, I mean, it's technically true that he was not ordered to do that. He just mm-hmm. saw the opportunity and took the initiative. And at no point would Jarvis have ever said to Nelson as he was doing this, oh, no, don't do that, and, and told him to stop. You know, he, Jarvis recognized that this was a good thing to do and, and followed him in. So uh, he didn't disobey orders, but he does make a name for himself. This is where he becomes famous, which is why it's worth spending uh, some time on this, because uh, Nelson ends up in the, the thick of the action. He, uh, his ship takes a Spanish ship by, uh, he boards it, which is pretty unusual in a fleet action. It's actually pretty hard to board a ship. Mm-hmm. leads a boarding party onto the Spanish ship. And then another Spanish ship comes up and gets entangled with the first Spanish ship. So then Nelson leads the same boarding party onto the next Spanish ship and manages to take two Spanish ships uh, basically in the same move. Mm-hmm. And later after the battle, he made sure to have Prince, he supported the uh, the printing of these uh, depictions of that action. And he called it Nelson's Patent Bridge for Boarding First Rates. Uh, and the joke is, of course, that the patent bridge is another first rate. So he used one ship to board another. But the only way he was able to do that was because there were, you know, half a dozen other British ships involved in the same part of the same action. Right. So damaged the Spanish ships that they got entangled like that. So um, it's it was a team effort for sure. Nelson took the sort of the most uh, you know, ostentatious um action and that he made his name for himself after that he also made sure to uh, tell everybody that he had done this so he was a good good at pr um but yeah he 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 is rightly famous after the end of uh at the end of the battle of cape st vincent okay and around this time becomes admiral I, obviously i know what a captain of a ship does the admiral kind of controls the whole fleet though that he's assigned correct yeah so it depends on uh, where the Admiral is um, and whether they're in a detached command or if they're in a bigger fleet. So um, Nelson is promoted to Admiral, Rear Admiral of the Blue. If he is on a detached command and we're, we'll see him on a t- detached command shortly and in, in, at the Battle of the Nile, then yeah, he's both responsible for the movement of uh, the fleet as well as its provisioning and the tactics that it's going to employ and supervising all the officers on board. You know, it, it's uh, there, there are many army equivalents that your listeners, I'm sure, can and draw parallels to. Um, but sometimes admirals serve under other admirals. In that case, they're in charge of uh, a section of the fleet, and they're in charge of a squadron or or some other uh, duty related to that. Mm-hmm. Well, uh, not long afterwards, he suffers a stiff loss against the Spanish at the Battle of... I'll let you pronounce it. Uh, it's basically in the Canary Islands. Let's go with that. I mean, yeah. <laughs> Canary Islands. He's also um, somewhat severely wounded, too. What happened in that battle? So um, the big context for this action in um, 
1797, I think, is uh, that in the spring of 1797, so just a couple months after the Battle of Cape St. Vincent, there's a the great mutinies happen in, in April, May, June of 1797. Mm-hmm. And those are mutinies back in the, the home waters. So they're in the Channel Fleet and in the North Sea Squadron uh, back in England. But they are uh, they really shake the foundations of British naval power because if the sailors are refusing to serve, even if the French are out, then uh, the, all of Britain's strategy in the war is going to collapse around its ears and British naval power will 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 crumble. So uh, Nelson's in the Mediterranean at the time. Um, he's still there after the Battle of Cape St. Vincent. And he doesn't, there are no mutinies uh, in the Mediterranean squadron, but every officer is suddenly on edge that there yeah. is going to be a mutiny. And so one of the things, one of the ways that Jarvis and Nelson, um, they diagnosed the problems it of uh, what had happened in the Channel Fleet was that the sailors hadn't been busy enough. Mm-hmm. They basically come up with any excuse they can find to keep the sailors busy. And that means coming up with, you know, legitimate military targets, but maybe not targets that would have been very high on their list before the mutinies. And so mm-hmm. the treasure ship that's supposed to be in a harbor in Tenerife and they decide, okay, well, Nelson, why don't you go lead from the front to show the men, you know, what lead by example here, go take this treasure ship and, and capture the mole uh, where the you know the little uh, gun battery is, and and that'll keep up morale. It'll keep us, uh, you know, everybody loves a treasure ship. You can uh, distribute the proceeds, and that'll make people happy, and also it'll keep people busy. So that was the context for it. Um, but uh, the operations bungled. They try to land by surprise twice, but all that does is alert the defenses. So the third time they try it, it's not a surprise. Nelson is separated from uh, the other boats in the squadron, and. Uh, he's shot in the arm just as he's trying to get out of the boat. He loses his right arm. He's lucky not to have died. Uh, it was it was a really close call. Wow. So I mean, he's already lost sight in his eye, and now a right arm. He's really uh, he's really getting a lot of scars in his career early on. Yeah, and remember, if you lose one of the other things that admirals do all day is they uh, write letters, <laughs> and uh, if you lose a uh, your right arm, then you have to learn how to write with your left hand. So um, it's. Nelson's pretty depressed after this incident, as you can imagine. He just lost his right arm. He was defeated. It's no fun. Um, but he has to teach himself how to write with his left hand. So there's some really fascinating letters uh, that are in the National Maritime Museum in Greenwich in England that, that are always worth checking out to watch Nelson teach himself how to write left-handed uh, mm. you know, at the age of 40. Um, and it's uh, it's tough. He's he's clearly not in a, not in a good place. Yeah. Yeah. Well, um, I think it's important to note that as much as we like to lionize these men, uh, Nelson, Wellington and Napoleon, um, we must remember that they're human and they had setbacks or losses in their career. So still a great commander. He's having a great career so far, but like his best moments aren't even here yet. Correct. Right. Well, the Battle of Cape St. Vincent is up there in his career pantheon for sure. Uh, mm-hmm. But you're right. Uh, he he has his ups and downs just like everybody else does. He doesn't win all his uh, every action that he's in, involved with. Um Okay. Well, um, on the other side of um, uh, the English Channel, there's this guy named Napoleon who's kind of up and coming. He does very well in Italy. Uh, the directory wants to, the director of government of France wants to get, basically get him away from Paris. So Napoleon and the directory come up with the idea of invading Egypt. So they head out, I think, in 1798. Right. Um, and, and it's very secret. Uh, Napoleon and, and the French government kind of keep it very secret on where they're going. I think even the troops on the ships don't even know until the last moment that they're going to Egypt. Is this why 
Nelson has trouble locating and intercepting this expedition? Sort of. There's a lot going on. Uh, interestingly, there are parts of the British government that know exactly where they're going. Mm. Um, so the British intelligence had penetrated this. I, I, you're absolutely right. It was a very secret expedition. It, it was not intended to tell anybody where they were going. Many of the men on board didn't know where they were going. All that's true. But the British knew. But they couldn't believe it. It was <laughs> too ridiculous to be true. Like, right. Why would they do that? Right. That was not going to Egypt was not something that made any sense to anybody. And so the British, it's, it is a British intelligence failure in the sense that they had the right intel and they didn't act on it properly. But on the other hand, it's easy to sort of take the side of the British here and say, yeah, it is crazy to think what the French were doing. And so it's not surprising that they didn't quite uh, believe that this would happen. Um, but so that's one reason why Nelson uh, doesn't ca capture Napoleon at sea and end uh, Napoleon's career far before uh, it could really take off. Mm -hmm. um, the other reason there, there, there are two other reasons. One is that uh, Toulon is always is where the squad that's where the expedition leaves from. And it's a very difficult place for the British to blockade. It's on the wrong side of the of France, right? It's in the Mediterranean. So mm -hmm. you have to deploy a squadron there and figure out where to station the squadron when it's not immediately off of Toulon, right? You need a, a port somewhere to resupply, to provide the provisions for the ships and to keep them in, in repair. Mm -hmm. uh, there's nothing close by. So uh, they try Menorca for a while, but that's got its problems. Gibraltar is pretty far away and doesn't have many resources and they don't quite haven't gotten to Malta yet. So... Uh, Toulon is a difficult place to blockade. So Nelson's job, he's detached from the Mediterranean squadron under St. Vincent and told to go uh, figure out what this expedition is doing and stop it from happening. But it's really hard to blockade Toulon because it's uh, it's a very open harbor and it's not a, a place that's easy to sit right off of and just keep people from coming out. So that's the second problem. And then the third problem is that uh, Nelson's ship is dismasted in a storm the night that the expedition leaves. Uh -huh. uh, and it's probably not Nelson's fault. It's probably the fault of his flag captain. So admirals had uh, captains that commanded the ship that they were on their, you know, the flagship had a captain. Mm -hmm. uh, that person's responsible for sailing the ship and his flag captain probably bungled it. And that caused his ship to be dismasted because he's the other ships that he's with are not dismasted, interestingly. So it suggests that something went wrong on Nelson's ship. Got it. They're dismasted and they're blown away from uh, the entrance to the harbor. So the French are able to get out of Toulon without the British figuring out where they're going. And Nelson tries to gather intelligence over the course of the next couple of weeks to try to figure out where they're going. He's got people telling him that they're going to Egypt, but he's like, you can't be serious. They must not be going to Egypt. <laughs> Until he finally realizes that that's the only explanation for where he hears the French have gone. And so he decides, all right, fine. You're going to Egypt. I will go to Egypt too. And he races to Egypt. On the way there, he and the French, the, the British and the French squadrons pass within sight of each other, but they're misidentified and there's, uh, they don't recognize that that's what the other squadron is. It's very hard to identify an enemy or a friendly ship at sea and they're distant on the horizon and they assume that it's something else when in fact it was actually the enemy. So there's a very close call. Nelson almost intercepts the French fleet at sea. And again, there's another great what if. Another day is here and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? 
Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America NA, member FDIC. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. You just wonder, like, if he would have caught up with him and stopped him before he got to Egypt. But, yeah, a great what if. There's a great what if there. There's a great what if about he never let him get out of Toulon in the first place. That's two. Then the third one is that Nelson actually beat the French to Egypt. Remember that the French are uh, carrying with them all these troops, you know, the army that Napoleon's going to, you know, ends up deploying in Egypt. And um, so they're not very fast sailors. And the British don't have any of that with them. So they Mm -hmm. race off to Egypt and they arrive in Alexandria and there's nobody there and nobody's heard a thing about the French. And, and Nelson's like, Oh no, like I've blown it. I've raced to the Eastern end of the Mediterranean and the French have gone somewhere else. I thought that they were coming here. Well, maybe I, maybe I made a mistake. So he turns around he, he heads uh, back to the middle of the Mediterranean thinking that he's, you know, made a huge blunder. And anyways, mm-hmm. the French sort of take an unexpected route and, and sort of gently and slowly, you know, land in Egypt and, and everybody, all the troops get off. And Nelson then hears about this and is like, oh, they were going there after all, turns around and races back. And that's when the Battle of the Nile happened yeah. after yeah. Napoleon had gotten off. So the third what if in this story is what if Nelson had not beaten the French to Egypt, but actually met them there when they arrived. So uh, he's basically unlucky. He does almost everything right, in the except for getting dismasted in this campaign. But it's, you know, the ocean is big. It's uh, <laughs> yeah. a fundamental fact in naval warfare, and it's really hard to find other enemy ships at sea. If you're at the top of the mast of a of Nelson's flagship on a clear day, you could maybe see 20 miles. Right. That's not nothing, but the Mediterranean is a lot bigger than 20 miles. So and if you see a sail on the horizon, you don't necessarily know what that sail is. You got to get a lot closer to figure it out. So, yeah, Indeed. a couple missed calls there. Well, he more than makes up for it. And he fights and wins his second most famous, famous battle, in my opinion, uh, the Battle of the Nile uh, in Egypt. What was the key to this lopsided victory against the French? I've heard different things, you know, the layout uh, that the French captain chose or maybe Napoleon chose for the French captain. But I also think it was some uh, boldness on Nelson's part, wasn't it? Both of those things are true. So, okay. um, and actually, there's a third factor too, which is Nelson's uh, lead captain, uh, Foley in the Goliath, is the one who actually figures out that he can go inshore the French. So, for people who aren't familiar with the battle, basically the the French army's ashore, and the uh, twelve ships of the thirteen ships of the line that the French have that had escorted the the troops there don't really have much of a mission at this point because um, they've successfully deposited the, the army ashore. And mm-hmm. so they've anchored themselves in Abakir Bay near the mouth of the Nile. And uh, they'd anchor themselves in such a way that they thought that there was no way that the British would risk trying to get in between them and the shoals that were near the shore. So mm-hmm. they thought the British ships would be too deep and, and it would be too difficult to do that. But uh, when Nelson realizes where the French are, he orders an immediate attack, even though it's late in the day, it's like four o'clock in the afternoon. He says, I don't care. Let's go for it. And that kind of aggression also you know, trickles down to his captains. And so the first captain in the line, uh, Foley in the Goliath, figured out that he actually could get inshore of the French. And so he leads some captains on the inshore and then other captains go on the outside. And they managed to double up 
the, the 12 British ships of the line double up the French uh, uh, half of the fleet. And mm -hmm. because the other ships are at anchor and because they are they act cowardly, they do not uh, come to support their uh, their colleagues in danger. And so the British are able to uh, fire to both sides of the French ships over the course of the uh, evening. And it results in the explosion of the 120 gun French flagship, the Lorient, uh, in a massive uh, explosion that sort of causes the battle to stop for half an hour where everybody picks up the pieces um, but uh, yeah, it's a it's an astonishing British victory. They take eleven out of the thirteen French ships of the line. Interestingly, one of the um, uh, captains, or I guess he's an admiral already, uh, in the two that get away is Villeneuve, who's going to, who becomes Nelson's uh, uh, opponent at Trafalgar. So he, he yeah. got him there. We'll hear that name again later. And um, there's one final uh, what if because obviously Napoleon's now stranded somewhat in Egypt, but he, he sneaks away later, uh, and leaves his army there and somehow again evades the British arm, uh, British Navy. Yeah. And a lot of that's on Nelson actually. So after, um, after the Nile, Nelson ends up in Naples where he's supposed to be supporting, um, the Neapolitan effort against French Republicans in Italy. Uh, instead he gets tangled up in court politics and uh, makes a series of errors. He also meets and falls in love with Emma Hamilton, who's the wife of the British ambassador, uh, and they end up in a really bizarre menage a trois, um, or, uh, and uh, yeah, it's a it's a strange story. This is where uh, Nelson's marriage breaks down. Nelson is bitter that he wasn't uh, sufficiently praised for his great victory at the Nile. He thought he should have been uh, made a something more than Baron Nelson of the Nile. A barony is nice, but it's not uh, an earldom, which is what St. Vincent had gotten after the Battle of St. Vincent. So he's jealous. He's wounded. He's hurt. Uh, emotionally and physically, um, and he's fallen in love with Emma Hamilton, and he's caught up in court politics. And while all this is happening, Napoleon decides to leave his army in Egypt and sneak back. And there's some uh, evidence to suggest that the British knew that that was happening and were encouraging Napoleon to come back from Egypt in order to, uh, you know, uh, launch the coup that he that he launched. Um, but in Nelson's case, I don't think Nelson had anything to do with that other than uh, neglecting his job of uh, keeping the French in Egypt. All right. Well, let's talk about that bad decision making and the Naples controversy where he's accused of war crimes. Can you briefly sum up what that was about? I think the way to explain it is um, is probably in the simplest terms, I think a war crimes accusation is a little unfair. Let's let's go through the facts first and then we'll decide how guilty he is. Uh, OK, so another officer who was in Nelson's squadron, uh, was on the spot and he had, uh, there, there were some, uh, French Republican allied, um, troops that had gotten caught in a castle, I think, uh, near Naples. And they decided to surrender on the terms that the officer had agreed to give them, which was that they would be released and sent back to France. Mm -hmm. Nelson showed up when he got back from uh, a patrol and canceled the agreement. Um, but it seems like nobody really told the rebels this. So when they surrendered, they thought that they were getting safe passage back to France, but instead they were turned over to the Neapolitan forces who mm -hmm. executed a bunch of them. Wow. So Nelson it, did not execute them, but Nelson did not handle the situation with the kind of tact and um, insight that you would want him to have handled it with. 
so that's the quote unquote war crime. So I tend to think it's, I don't think war crime is fair, but I, I think he did not shower himself in gory in that incident. And it was uh, deeply unfortunate and a, and a tragedy. Yeah. Just, you know, a stand on in his career. Yeah. Maybe you don't call it a war crime, but it's certainly um, something that doesn't reflect well on him. Right. Well, moving along in his story, um, he assists in the successful siege of Malta against the French garrison there. But his personal life is kind of broken by this time, isn't it? Yeah, he's disobeying orders from superior officers to stay with uh, Emma Hamilton in Naples. He, uh, yeah, he helps out with the siege of Malta, but I, I wouldn't give him too much credit there. He's generally neglectful of his uh, responsibilities while he's in Naples. And he's so neglectful, actually, that he doesn't even take a ship home. He and Emma and William Hamilton uh, end up going overland back to England uh, when he's finally relieved of his embarrassing duty in the Mediterranean. Um, so, yeah, it, this is when he arrives back in England in, in uh, I think, 1800 and um, has a very awkward encounter with Fanny, his wife, and ends up living with uh, Sir William and Emma in this menage a trois situation that uh, is the great scandal of the day. And so he's mm -hmm. in all the newspapers and it's the, you know, uh, poor Fanny, right? Yeah. Yeah. And um, yeah, you wonder like if his, if his ego is just too big for his britches by this point, or, 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 or maybe like you said, he just feels like he should have been more awarded and lauded with, you know, titles after his big victory at the Nile. I think that's an accurate description of your ego being too big. Yeah. Well, moving along the story, uh, in 1801, he sails to the Baltic Sea and is involved in the Battle of Copenhagen in Denmark. This was, this wasn't a lopsided one. This is more of a close call victory, wasn't it? That's right. Nobody trusts Nelson with an independent command after what he'd done in the Mediterranean. So he's sent out uh, as the number two. He's the second in command of the expedition. Mm -hmm. And... Uh, it's a, it's an interesting battle. It's hard to recreate because you need to know the ins and outs, literally, of uh, the harbor at Copenhagen. Uh, but the the general uh, description that you gave there is right. It's a close call. Uh, could easily have gone the other way. Um, Nelson is an important part of the British victory, um, but keep in mind that he's not actually in charge of the entire expedition, and so he's not in charge of the decision to attack Copenhagen in the first place. To understand that, you need to understand the uh, armed neutrality that Russia is trying to uh, foment in the Baltic, which would basically turn them into enemies of Britain uh, in practice, if not technically uh, legally. And so the real British target of that expedition was Russia, but the commander of the expedition, Nelson Superior, does not feel confident in going all the way through Copenhagen and all the way up to Russia to actually deal with the problem and, and decides instead to hit the Danes who had uh, sort of tentatively allied with the Russians in this armed neutrality. So that's where the battle comes from. The actual battle itself is very bloody, huge numbers of casualties on both sides. Uh, and it involves Nelson correctly identifying the weak point in the Danish defenses and leading his uh, ships safely into a position where they could hammer at the weakest part of the, of the Danish defenses. Uh, but this is actually where um, it, Nelson comes closest to disobeying orders for the sake of victory. And this is a, a funnier story, which is that uh, the Admiral Parker uh, gave Nelson a signal while Nelson was involved in hammering at the weakest parts of the defenses to order him, if he needed to, to retreat in front of the 
uh, if, if things were going poorly, this was Parker saying, you can come back. It looks like things are going badly. So if you need to come back, here's an order that says that you can do that. Uh, but that would involve basically throwing away the victory because Nelson would have had to bring his ships right in front of the strongest parts of the Danish defenses, at which point they probably would have lost. So uh, Nelson is pissed that he got this order. He doesn't want to obey the order. And so he fam- he turned to his flag captain, uh, Foley again, uh, and he said, you know, I have only one eye and I have a right to be blind sometimes. And then he <laughs> put the telescope up to his blind eye and said, I really don't see that signal. And basically all the other captains in his squadron, when he, they saw that Nelson didn't react to the signal and didn't repeat it and didn't put it up on his own uh, ship, they were like, all right, fine, let's just keep going. So uh, it, is it disobeying orders? Sort of. It's more like Nelson had better tactical information than Parker did. And so he correctly judged that the order to retreat was a bad idea and he should not do it. Got it. Got it. Um, well, yeah, just uh, that was an interesting battle. And I know it was quite violent with each side suffering over a thousand casualties. So I, I appreciate you giving us that overview of it. Um, in between this battle and obviously the most famous one in Trafalgar, what is Nelson up to? Well, he's partly responsible for repelling uh, attempted French invasions. Um, I say partly because he's basically trotted out as a way to reinforce public opinion and to convince them that um, that there's not actually a threat from the French. But then they ship him off to the Mediterranean to be the commander-in-chief. And so for the two years before Trafalgar, he is the commander-in-chief of the Mediterranean fleet. And his job is to guard, again, a French fleet that is preparing for sea at Toulon. Mm-hmm. Why would that have anything to do with invasion defense? Well, it turns out that Napoleon had something like eight different plans for how to invade Britain between 1803 and 1805. And Mm. many of them involved, not all of them, but many of them involved basically sending large French naval forces all the way to the West Indies, where the British would stupidly chase them. And then Mm. while the British had chased them, rush back to Europe, where they would get temporary control of the English Channel. Right. The idea was suck all the British forces across the ocean and then rush back before they knew what, what was happening because they were hoping to get all the French army that's encamped at Boulogne uh, across the channel as fast as they could. But as long as the British control the channel, that wasn't going to happen. So you had to remove British forces from the channel, and, and this was the plan. And okay. so the Toulon fleet was supposed to be a key part of that, that when the Toulon fleet left and raced across to the West Indies, that was supposed to drag all the British forces over to the West Indies. Mm-hmm. So Nelson's job was to stop that from happening. Well, let's uh, jump into this uh, 1805 battle, which is, um, you know, arguably his most famous one at Trafalgar. How did that battle go down and why was it such a pivotal victory for the, the British? I really want to emphasize that I have to tell you the story about the campaign at Trafalgar because the battle itself is a weird afterthought that has very little to do with the campaign, but the campaign is the important part. Okay. By the campaign, we mean this, this attempt by Napoleon to drag British forces away from the channel so that he could get his army across it. And so the real story of Trafalgar is in the campaign. And that's when, again, Nelson fails to prevent the French from getting out of Toulon, not his fault. It's a very difficult thing to do, but the French get out. And again, Nelson thinks, they must be going east. Maybe they're going back to Egypt again. So he guards the eastern approaches to the Med to do that. But in fact, the 
uh, French are going west. They go west to Spain. They pick up Spanish allies there. And then Villeneuve, who's in charge of the fleet, sails to the West Indies. Nelson figures out where Villeneuve's gone and sails to Gibraltar. He can't quite figure out what to do from there, though. Remember that Nelson is commander-in-chief of the Mediterranean, so he takes the remarkably bold decision to chase Villeneuve across to the West Indies, mm-hmm. not in the Mediterranean. And he, <laughs> uh, So he takes his command out of the Med, races across the Mediterranean, and almost intercepts Villeneuve in the West Indies. He gets some bad intel from an American, of all people. Uh, probably deliberately bad intel, actually. Because mm-hmm. uh, remember, the Americans are no friends, friends of the British here. Uh, and misses Villeneuve in the West Indies. But nevertheless, he, he at least has identified where Villeneuve was. Villeneuve sails back across the ocean. Napoleon's plan seems to be working, right? I was going to say, it, it seems to be important. working. Yeah. But then when Villeneuve gets back to the mouth of the English Channel, he loses his nerve and he's deterred from joining up with other French fleets that are that are stationed there by a guy named Sir Robert Calder, uh, who manages to scare Villeneuve off and Villeneuve retreats into uh, the Spanish port of Ferrol. And at that point, the uh, the campaign uh, comes to a sort of grinding halt um, that uh, Napoleon's plans have, have have fallen apart. Nelson goes back to the Mediterranean at that point, um, figuring that I guess he should probably return to wherever his his command uh, was. That was his job after all. Uh, and uh, Villeneuve eventually decides, I can't do this. I'm, I'm, I can't overwhelm the British in the Channel, and he puts into port at Cadiz. Uh, in the summer of 1805. And in the summer of 1805, at the same time, the Austrians declare war and Napoleon up sticks from Boulogne and heads east to go fight them. And that's the uh, Battle of Austerlitz. I have yet to mention the Battle of Trafalgar and yet <laughs> the invasion threat is over. Right. Nelson goes on leave in August. He goes home for the first time in two years. And he's like, Woof, man, that was crazy, wasn't it? Yeah. Um, and they blockade the French and Spanish fleet in Cadiz. Nelson takes a, a month off. He returns to the uh, blockade of Cadiz in, uh, I think, September um, of 1805. I, I'm not sure if I have that date right, but close enough. Mm-hmm. Uh, and spends a few weeks getting to know the captains that he didn't know very well from uh, because they weren't part of that fleet that had gone across the Mediterranean. And then uh, Napoleon is so pissed at Villeneuve for having bungled the plan for having not had the courage to press home the advantage when he had it that he sends him an order he's clearly going to relieve Villeneuve Villeneuve knows this is happening but he sends him an order to like I don't know sail and go support my army in Italy is basically mm-hmm. the order and Villeneuve's like all right fine and they leave the port in Cadiz and on October 20th uh, 1805 and the next day Nelson's fleet intercepts him and wins the great victory at Trafalgar but that's a afterthought right that's not part of the major operations of that summer, the major operations of that summer were the big question was, could Napoleon get across the English channel? Right. And it looks like from the, you know, from the way the campaign shook out, the answer was he maybe could have, there's a chance it was going to work, but Villeneuve blew it. And by mm-hmm. the time Villeneuve actually puts to sea to fight Nelson at Trafalgar, the campaign's over. Napoleon is up sticks and, and headed East. So it's not, right. it's not about Britain anymore. Right. Well, We'll briefly uh, touch on the battle because um, we do have to talk about the battle's aftermath. The, the two fleets were somewhat even in strength, were, were they not, with the French and the Spanish? Yeah. You know, they, yeah. A large number of ships against the British. Yeah, I think it's 33 French and Spanish to 27 uh, British. Mm-hmm. That matters a little bit, but that's roughly evenly matched in the grand scheme of things. Um, and especially because it's hard for allies to fight together like that in a, in a battle. So... 
um, the British do have the advantage of all being on the same team, whereas mm -hmm. the French and the Spanish have to uh, work with each other. Uh, so Nelson sets out the plan for the battle well in advance. He anticipates where he thinks he's going to find the French fleet, how or the French and Spanish fleet, how they're going to be arranged. Uh, he has a good sense in, in advance of what he wants to do. He tells all his captains what his plan is. Mm -hmm. and, uh, that plan is to form into two lines and approach at basically a right angle to the French and Spanish fleet, which is uh, usually not the done thing. If you do that, you're putting yourself at risk of being raked, which is getting shot down the bow or stern of your ship. This would be very damaging, but he decides he wants to take that risk because he thinks it's the best way to force a melee, force a chaotic action in which he knows that British training and gunnery will be more effective than French and Spanish training and gunnery. And he's proved exactly right in that. So it's a, a massive British victory. Um, and obviously, we'll talk about this in a second, but Nelson dies at the battle. He does know that he's won before he dies. Yeah, no, it's... Um, uh arguably uh, the most famous British victory uh, at sea ever. Um, but at the end, uh, like you said, Nelson knows that he's winning, but he's killed by a French sharpshooter at the tail end of the battle. Uh, but he's not killed outright. What were, what were his last moments like? It's pretty awful. Uh, he takes a bullet in the shoulder and it uh, breaks his spine. Mm. And, he knows that it's really bad by all accounts. He, he went below and he knew that he was, he wasn't going to make it, but it took about three hours for him to die. Um, so there are lots of conflicting accounts about his last words. Something, some people think that he said, thank God I've done my duty. Other people think, uh, God in my country, something like that. So, uh, there are a lot of people that recorded those moments, um, and, and talked about them after the fact. Uh, yeah, he, he knows he's won, uh, because by four 30, the battle's pretty much over. His last order is to anchor the fleet because they can tell there's a swell coming in and they know that there's a big storm coming. And the storm that follows the battle actually causes almost as much damage as, as the, the battle itself does. So uh, it's a it's a very damaging storm that um, that they can see coming. And that's those are Nelson's last moments. OK, well, he dies at uh, 47 years of age. Um what was his funeral like? Because I know uh, the Duke of Wellington had a massive funeral. Was uh, Nelson's similar? Yeah. Uh, in some ways, um, simpler. Mm -hmm. I don't mean that to say it wasn't grander. But mm -hmm. uh, nobody f had uh, conflicted feelings about Nelson's death, I think, is fair mm -hmm. to say. Whereas... If you were not uh, politically allied with the Duke of Wellington by the time he dies at the very grand old age of, of whatever it is uh, in the 1850s, right? Uh, there were people yeah. out there who, who really didn't like Wellington and had very good reasons to do it because he'd been a politician for 40 years, right? Right. So uh, unlike that, Nelson is universally respected and praised as the great hero of the age. So uh, his body lays in state at the Painted Hall in Greenwich uh, for three days, and then it was carried by barge to St. Paul's, hundreds of thousands of people probably saw it all lining up to see it uh, in sort of silent crowds. So really, uh, if you can think, picture what it looks like for a couple hundred thousand people to be silent, uh, you can imagine what this must have been like. Yeah. And then he's uh, interred underneath the crossing at St. Paul's where he still is today. So uh, yeah, a massive state funeral, effectively, the kind of thing you'd expect for a monarch, but in many ways, he was more beloved. Yeah. Well, uh, let's talk about his legacy. Um, I don't want to, I don't want to, I, I kind of want to <laughs> give you the floor on this because 
I mean, there's a Duke of Wellington, there's Napoleon, there's there's a lot of interesting, you know, King George III. There's a lot of interesting characters from this time period. But in terms of his legacy for the British Navy and for England or, you know, the United Kingdom itself, what would you say that is? Uh, slightly complicated for the Victorians uh, mm -hmm. who are concerned about his marital situation. Mm -hmm. uh, so he takes his reputation suffers a little bit uh, in the world of Victorian morality. But in pretty much every other case, he's widely praised as the greatest naval commander in, in British history. He uh, deserves a lot of that credit. He clearly was a brilliant tactician. He had an intuitive understanding of how uh, to maximize his chances of victory when he was in command of ships. He was uh, an, an incredible leader of men. He inspired men uh, in, in ways that are, it's hard to quantify, but we can clearly see in the, in the textual evidence and the way they talked about him. Um, he was uh, an innovative tactician. So he also understood how to make the most of uh, British advantages over the French and Spanish fleets. Uh, and, you know, you said in your notes to me before this that uh, you were interested in talking about how relatively strong the British Navy was and whether that should detract from his brilliance. And it is true that institutionally the British Navy is uh, stronger than the French and Spanish opponents in the Napoleonic period. But I don't think we should take that too far. Uh, among the reasons it's stronger is that the British Navy has Nelson. And uh, there are many other good reasons, too. But it's not like... Uh, Nelson is more than a replacement level admiral, let's put it that way. And right. there's evidence of that from uh, plenty of other battles at the time where uh, opportunities were presented that were similar to opportunities that Nelson had and the results were not as spectacular. Nelson mm -hmm. really managed to get the most out of the men that, that were serving underneath him. Uh, so uh, yeah, Nelson's leadership qualities and his uh, legacy are still widely celebrated and i think generally correctly so uh, mm -hmm. he's not somebody that i would feel too many complicated feelings about in terms of putting him up there with with napoleon and wellington of course yeah absolutely um no question in my mind that he deserves all that um and his you know his personal failings were you know he's human that's yeah, all there yeah. Is really to it yeah he had faults for sure but uh yeah and i appreciate your point on that i mean yes the british navy were the dominant force at sea, but were they head and shoulders above their competitors? You know, I, I, I don't know. They were in some respects and not in others. Mm -hmm. uh, so, you know, in terms of shipbuilding, for example, the French and Spanish managed to get more ships at sea than, than the British do. The British have a different manning system, so that uh, it has both pros and cons. Uh, their logistics are clearly superior to the French and Spanish. That's one of the areas of, of key strength. Um, and tactically, they seem to have been more aggressive and more willing to uh, focus on killing men rather than damaging ships, which generally uh, was a uh, was a better way to, to go about fighting a fleet battle. So, um, yeah, the, the British Navy was, I think, head and shoulders above the French and Spanish at the time. But that shouldn't, I think, diminish too much from uh, Nelson's accomplishment, for sure. Uh, and, you know, the Spanish Navy is probably the underrated partner in there. I think the Spanish Navy was... Uh, a, a really well-run generally organization, especially in the 1790s and was a, a, a viable foe for a lot of the British uh, uh, fights in the period. But um, yeah, I think Nelson managed to capitalize more on British strengths than many of his peers did. And, and that's worth something. Very good. Very good. Well, thank you for that, Evan. I appreciate it. Um, that was, 
really learned a lot in that, in that, uh, that episode and hopefully my listeners did as well. Um, the book, again, if you want to check out uh, The Horrible Peace by Evan um, you know, about British veterans post-1812 and post-Waterloo, please check it out. And uh, yeah, we appreciate you joining the show. Thanks for having me.